1: Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Shawley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show, which you can hear Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio on DAB on your smart speaker or on the Times Radio app. Right, uh, coming up today, are you ready for Super Thursday? It's the biggest collection of elections ever, probably, but it'll decide a huge amount about the political fortunes of many of our big and small political parties. We we'll take an in depth look at all of that in a moment with Rob Hayward, the pollster. We speak to someone from the Electoral Commission, and we've got actual Jackie Weaver talking about elections to parish councils. Uh, but first, as ever, we kick off on a Tuesday with our columnist panel, Finkelvich. Except we don't have the Vich. David Ivanovic isn't here, so we've got Finkelguire possibly. Anyway, it's Daniel Finkelstein and Patrick Maguire. Let's kick off first of all about uh, on the sort of the politics of, of the story, which has dominated for the last week. Obviously, on, on the of. Uh, following the, the, the death of Sarah Everard and uh, I mean coincidentally the timing of the debate on the police crime sentencing in courts bill uh, which means there's a sort of renewed interest in what the government is doing on this front and the Labour Party uh, which said originally it was going to abstain on it now saying it's going to vote against. Last night Downing Street announced a package of new measures which includes uh, measures on how to protect women including uh, patrols of bars and clubs by plainclothes police officers uh, also um, new rules on tackling protests uh, Danny, what, what, what do you make of this? It feels like we're suddenly having quite a big conversation about the role of the police, who polices the police. Yes. Uh, and what, where, you know, on the one hand, people well, wanting actually quite significant intrusions into our lives uh, to try and uh, help keep women safer, while others,
2: you know, the big debates about the right to protest and freedom of speech. Yeah, I mean, there are obviously two different, two, two different sorts of things. Uh, on the protest bill, uh, rather embarrassingly, given my liberal instinct, I actually find myself pretty much solidly behind this piece of legislation. I think that the right to protest is very important, but it's not the only right. Uh, I think people who do it um, need... To You know, there there needs to be a legal balance between that right and the nuisance that they cause to others. And it's not an unbounded right. I didn't, you know, we used to have that situation, Patrick. will remember this, you'll remember this, where people could could uh, leave things in Parliament Square, there was a big camp. And I used to joke that if you if you left a fridge by the side of the road, you could get arrested. but if you took it to Parliament Square and wrote the word blire on it, uh, it would be protected <laughs> speech. Um, and, and I, you know, I do think I... So my view of this, and by the way, actually also of the part that relates to encampments, that is to, to people who um, arrive in places and decide to set up home there, I think it's reasonable that the law... Covers some of those things. Of course, people must have the right to free speech, um, and of course, they must have the right to protest. And it, these are difficult balances. Uh, but the law need does need uh, to ensure that if somebody decides they're going to, um, you know, glue themselves to something to prevent everyone else going to work in order to make their political point, that they can't do that repeatedly. And I think that's a reasonable a reasonable thing to for the law to cover. Patrick, it's a difficult balance to strike. This because on the on the one hand,
1: uh, if you if basically if you have a, a protest which causes no uh, has no impact on anyone else, it's a sort of a nice gathering of polite people, you know, on a road which is nobody wants to drive down, and everyone goes away afterwards. Basically, nobody takes any notice. Uh, and part of the reason why people talked about Extinction Rebellion, for example, was because they did stop newspapers being delivered, or they did. I mean, slightly gluing yourself to a tube tray was a slightly odd thing to do, but people did end up talking about their cause. Whereas if, you know, there are a number of, in normal times anyway, a number of protests and marches and things which happen on quiet Saturdays through central London, which get no coverage at all. Um, uh, so what's the point? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? The, 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 the question and the thing that has got re- people really het up
3: is this, this wording in the bill, um, serious annoyance. You know, protests that cause serious annoyance will be... Um, covered by the new clauses of the law. And obviously that raises questions as, you know, who defines, well, obviously the courts define in, in this uh, in this particular scenario serious annoyance, but obviously that's, a, to many people, that's a subjective measure. And it's interesting, just sort of drilling down a little bit more, obviously now the whole basis of this conversation, particularly from critics of what happened on Saturday, um, the very ugly things on Clapham Common, is that, you know, protests... It's almost implicit in this argument that protests, with very very few exceptions, should never be circumscribed, right? When actually, you know, if you just look back over the last few years, lots of people from the left and from uh, with more liberal sensibilities have, have made very sound arguments and convincing arguments that actually, even peaceful protests sometimes should be should be you know circumscribed and should be should should have bars in them, right? The one I'm thinking of is, you know, lots of uh, people think there should be buffer zones around family planning clinics and abortion clinics to prevent pro-life activists gathering outside. Um, and, you know, even if it's completely silently holding a vigil with rosaries and, uh, and graphic posters, uh, you know, they should be, they should be, they should be banned by law from standing near there. Now, actually, I don't disagree with that, maybe on the question of legislation, but it's interesting that actually we are now having this discussion uh, because um you know because of the specific process that's been i think you know once we go down this road i think actually you know as danny says we are gonna we're very quickly riding up against the the fundamental truth that actually it's not an untrammeled and unqualified right and there are lots of circumstances in which even people now saying well uh, i wouldn't like my right process protest circumstance so i would say well actually i wouldn't want that happening but by the same time um you know i could be seriously annoyed if i for instance, I read a story in the Manchester Evening News yesterday about a scout hut being requisitioned by the Church of England. Right? I'm sure the property developer would be seriously annoyed if uh, a load of uh, young lads in their woggles had a had a protest outside. But you know, these things have to be <laughs> these have to th- th- things have to be balanced, don't they?
2: Yeah. But I noticed in in in, in Baroness Chakrabarti, in Sammy Chakrabarti's article about this bill, um, she singled out the fact that Extinction Rebellion had tried to stop uh, what she twice described as the Murdoch press from being published. And the fact that it, you know, the, the press in this particular case, and obviously that's the building in which you're now sitting, Matt, and which I often am uh, in when, when we're not locked down. Um, the fact that it is the Murdoch press has got nothing to do with it, right? So you cannot have one rule that covers um, liberal demonstrations and another rule that doesn't. And we've seen that actually in the discussion in which nobody protested um, the arrest of Piers Corbyn for his anti-vax and anti-lockdown campaigning, Um, and yet a, you know, and yet a similar a, a protest for something else, which more people, including myself, approved of, um, attracted immense condemnation when the police tried to prevent that from happening so you, but you can't have uh, you know a, a, a rule, one rule the, a rule set entirely by whether or not people like the cause um, but I do think it's reasonable you know I, I, the idea that somebody is able to cause infinite nuisance, for example, standing outside someone 's window twenty four hours a day sat. Shouting "Stop Brexit" for for a year, um, <laughs> I, I I don't think it's unreasonable to, uh, to 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 have some laws that allow proportionate policing of that. If if the police use it disproportionately, they'll use any law disproportionately, and that is a problem for reform of the police and of its leadership. Um, but the law does need to allow, and and clearly gaps have been shown to exist. It does need to allow. Policing of these demonstrations more effectively. You can't just stand by while someone digs up a lawn, for example, because you haven't got the legal power to do anything about it.
1: Uh, on a point of uh, of uh, fact, uh, Danny, I should point out I'm actually still broadcasting from home, so uh, I'm not in a building. Entirely owned by uh,
2: Mr Murdoch, although it he doesn't help. Crumb, much, I'm so repeat. glad you made that point. It Completely With, changes the. Direction uh, you know, of the the, argument, yeah,
1: the, the building that I sit in is very much owned uh, mainly by Santander rather than uh, <laughs> <laughs> rather than uh, uh, Rupert Murdoch. And I, 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 it's one of those things, isn't it? Where um, the, the, the obvious, the, 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 your knee-jerk reaction to what happened at the weekend is to say it was terrible, and you know the way the police behaved. There was, you know, clearly there was no need to be pinning people aggressively to the floor. But because you agree with the sentiment of it, we all do it, you end up overlooking the principle of it. And actually, st- take a step back, lots of people have not done things that they wanted to do in the last 12 months.
4: I do uh, if you mind if, I,
1: if seeing... I intervene
2: just to get myself into, tr- into minor trouble, one assumes that it wasn't necessary to, to police in the way that they did. But that is because I've never policed anything. Uh, and I've never tried to get someone to leave a demonstration who's refusing to do it. Uh, I await I to see see what the ind- what in sort of independent inquiry into the use of those methods was with a reasonably open mind it sounds as though it can't possibly be necessary to police in that way but i'm not a policeman and i've never been and neither of any of the people who've commented on it and if you're a policeman yeah, yeah, yeah. that is quite hard they did try one very effective method which was asking the people to leave from a demonstration that they had been asked not to organize and they chose not to do that uh, whether or not they could have then used a method that was less intrusive or should indeed just have backed off because of the particular uh, sensitivities of the situation is a different matter. But I, I hesitate before Jumbie's conclusion that there was some other way of policing something which people announce having never policed anything themselves.
1: Yeah, yeah you know, in fact, I suppose my point sort of follows on from that. In the, I totally understand why people wanted to go there, but people... In other situations in the past half months, people have wanted to see dying relatives or uh, or, or or you know sick sick friends and family, and they haven 't done that because they 've been told it was against the law and uh, and that was the coronavirus rule so so yeah it 's difficult isn 't it because just because we and we all do we all do it because we agree with a particular cause or otherwise you slightly put a, to one side the um the obvious uh, objections to it. Uh, Let's move on, because I'm uh, conscious of time. Uh, Coming up, we're going to be talking about these elections happening on May the 6th. Super Super Thursday, um, as I think literally only I'm currently calling it. Uh, But thousands of council seats up. There's uh, elections in Scotland, uh, Scottish Parliament, Welsh Parliament, mayoral elections, Police and Crime Commission elections, which is, of course, the one that everyone's talking about. I'm really interested in uh, how we're already in the situation where, at this point, in the electoral cycle... The government would be doing very badly and the opposition would be on course to win uh, huge numbers. Uh, But Patrick, you were listening into the the, we're going to hear from uh, Rob Hayward in a moment. But you were listening into his briefing and this idea of the the vaccine vote, the, the vaccine bounce and the impact that might be having on Keir Starmer.
3: Yeah, indeed. I mean, what's happening is that, uh, you know, t- talk about transactional politics. People who've had the vaccine or shifted, or people in the demographic age uh, age brackets that are likelier than not to have be been vaccinated by now, i.e., fifty fives and overs, are shifting to the Tories ahead of uh, May's locals, which uh, which Robert Hayward memorably described as like the Super Bowl, the FA Cup final, and Wimbledon's men's singles final, all rolled into one. Given the delayed polls from from last. It's the closest thing Keir Starmer will fight to a general election before he gets his um, his first crack at it. Um, so the, the success of the vaccination program, he said, has has pushed a lot lot of people towards the Tories, and you see that reflected in the in the national in the national polls. But you know, it's easy to to ask searching questions of Keir Starmer at this moment. You know, why isn't he doing better? Um, I think a more you know a pithier question uh and one that's worth worth asking is why would he be doing better you know we've been in a pandemic for a year people have been largely behind the government and now it's getting better and we have the you know unlike unlike any country in europe we have the promise of a relatively normal summer uh so i you know and, and and still bear in mind that we have two months to go uh before the locals and uh, and things could things could shift a little bit. So um it's easy to be fatalistic at this point, but no matter how uh no matter how grisly things are for, for Keir Starmer in early May, um it's not over yet.
1: And, uh, Danny, the thing that strikes me, and, and you know, Labour are sort of on the record saying this, both you, Keir Starmer and others, talk about the vaccine bounce, as if this is just, you know, like Britain win, uh, England winning the World Cup or the weather being nice and people... Yeah, it's not... It's, yeah. The vaccine bounce... Ba- the, va- the, the, the success of the vaccine is not entirely
2: independent of the government that is now getting some credit for it. Well, funnily enough, I think we're taking a, a perspective that's both too near... Uh, and do distant right? it, 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 it's, it's not it, 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 at the same time. Um, so it is. It, there is. It is wrong to think that the vaccine bounce, you know, is going to be a decisive factor in uh, Keir Starmer's election. There definitely is. Uh, you know, you would expect this from a social psychological point of view. Something called the peak end rule. You'd expect something that happens at the end of it to have more of an impact. Uh, but. That the next election there'll also be a chi- time for a change feel there'll be all sorts of feel this will be you know two or three years in the past. Um, so in that way, we're, we're looking at it too closely. But I actually think there are two other dates that are more important in the reason why Keir Starmer's got uh, problems. One is around about 1900, and the other is the date when he was born, right? In, in 1900, the Labour Party set itself up as a body that believed in two things, socialism and representing the labouring classes. The labouring classes have changed, and socialism... Um, so- social democracy works, but socialism uh, is still a vague concept that, is, that hasn't actually been shown to work Anywhere social democracy being different from that. Uh and the Labour Party has struggled because it's defined by two things, which it no longer thinks work. Uh and um the second problem is Keir Starmer's a search for a solution that isn't authentic to him, right? Since he's been born, he's been a certain type of person. Um, he should embrace that, uh, and he should be creating the Labour Party that is a legitimately liberal party of the sort that represents his real politics. Um, when he does that, he carries some sort of conviction, at least, um, and authenticity and conviction is absolutely critical. And I think... Um, trying to be something that he isn't however demographically tempting it may be is never ever going to succeed and so his solution to the Labour Party's long-term strategic problem has got to be one that's authentic to him and I think he struggles with that he thinks maybe I need to be um, you know be credible in these red wall seats when that isn't really who he is um, and yet what he is is something quite potent well, which lots of people can relate to uh, um, and um, if he was that I think people would find him more convincing
1: and I suppose we should point out that, that both uh, sides seem to be playing the game of, of focusing on things which have got nothing to do with local councils, and local elections. You know, the government enjoyed the vaccine bounce, which is not down to district councils or county councils, and uh, Labour running on a uh, pledge of paying nurses more, which, again, is not decided by local councils. So creating the idea that these, these elections are actually to do with a referendum on the government rather than... Um, Anything to do with who runs your, your local council. Uh, just finally, I want to ask you both, uh, what did you think of the £2.6 million makeover uh, of the of the new briefing room that Downey Street have unveiled, aside from
2: Henry the Hoover hiding in the corner? Uh, Danny, are you excited by this? Yeah, it's very funny that the government, this government sort of tried started out trying to be J. Edgar Hoover and has ended up being Henry the Hoover. Um, <laughs> the, the uh, um, I, I, I'm I'm going to be the one person who is in favour of doing this. Basically, Downing Street is no, is a building that needs to be re-engineered in order to be suitable for the job of a modern government. And you and you've got to have a big press briefing room. I am sure the 2.6 million pounds was basically because every single thing you touch in that building is a Grade One listed building, is an absolute nightmare, and you'll have required real real structural work. If they've created a big large size briefing room, I think that actually will have been worth the money. Uh, it probably was, knowing what I know about go- government contracts, a multiple more expensive than need to be, but um, but not so absurdly more as uh, to be, you know, well, we paid £2.6 million for a bunch of chairs and, and, a, and, a, and, a t- and a video recorder. It'll be much more complicated than that.
1: <laughs> uh, what about you, Patrick? Are you looking forward to getting in there and sitting on, on one of those not terribly comfortable-looking chairs?
3: Oh well, look. I already felt sorry for the the viewing public at the thought of, um, you know, the, the the often very pointless and tedious exchanges in uh, in lobby briefings being televised, and you know, given that it's going to take place in something that looks, you know, uh, several degrees less attractive on the eye as a provincial travel lodge, I feel even feel even worse for them. <laughs> I, 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 w- I I certainly wouldn't tune in to watch myself. Uh, you know, quibble with the precise wording of a sentence of a press release nobody's read. Um, and,
1: <laughs> yeah. Danny Finkelstein and Patrick Maguire there. Of course, you can read uh, Danny in the Times every week on a Wednesday, and Patrick Maguire is now the Red Box editor, writing the Red Box email every day, Monday to Thursday, just like somebody else used to. Uh, so you can sign up to that. You just need to get yourself a Times subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Box.
6: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45
4: up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
1: You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for this. It's a democratic clash like we've never seen before. Across the country, men will be asked to vote not once, not twice, but vote early and vote often. It includes 129 members of the Scottish Parliament, 60 members of the Senate in Wales, 40 police and crime commissioners, 5 city mayors, 8 metro mayors, 40 members of the London Assembly, 881 seats on 35 metropolitan councils, 1,044 seats on 59 district councils, 1,283 seats on 28 unitary councils, 1,424 seats on 19 county councils, several local referendums on keeping, scrapping or creating mayors, and up to 9,000 parish councils. This is Super Thursday, the vaccine vote. I know, I don't know how they let me do that on the radio, but there we are. Right, so yes, it's May the 6th. is going to be huge politically because there are so many elections happening across the country. We're going to unpick them all uh, in this half an hour. Let's start, though, in particular with those English council elections first. Robert Hayward. Lord Hayward is a polling analyst and conservative peer and he's been crunching the numbers on this and joins me now. Hi Robert. Good morning Matt. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. First of all just explain why we've got quite so many elections. It's, it's, a, it's a bumper time for political nerds like you and I. <laughs> make, it
7: makes me feel so sad but the reality is that the elections were cancelled last year so we've got two years elections in one go. And also, because there have been no by-elections and other forms of elections during the year, there are a large number of council by-elections of all form to fill vacancies because of tragic deaths or resignations and the like.
1: So it's created a, a particular bump. You've described it as the Super Bowl, the FA Cup final and Wimbledon men's single final all rolled into one. That's how exciting uh, it is. Uh, So um, uh, let's talk about, um, because obviously to some extent, when we decide, well, who's had a good night and who's had a bad night, we have to look at when was the last time uh, these seats were contested. So in terms of the councils, uh, when were these last up? So we can sort of see, was it a high point or a low point for for Labour and the Tories?
7: Some were from 2016 and should have been contested last May. Uh, And they were at a point when the Conservatives were doing adequately. They had a 6% lead. But then the next batch were from 2017 and were scheduled to be this year anyway. And that was a point when the Conservatives had a huge lead and therefore picked up all sorts of councils, which they would
1: never have expected to. And 2017 was odd, wasn't it? Because the Tories under Theresa May did amazingly well in the council elections. And then, of course, a few weeks later in the general election, she lost her majority.
7: Absolutely staggeringly well. Uh, the first week in May and f- first week in June lost, as you say, lost the overall majority. Nobody could have foreseen when the results were coming in on that week, that uh, weekend in May that the results of the general election were going to be so very different only a few weeks later.
1: So given that, that is the baseline, what does a good night or a bad night look like for Boris Johnson, Keir Starmer, Ed Davey and the rest?
7: The places that people will pay greatest attention to in England are the mayoral results in the West Midlands, London and Teesside. There are other mayors as well. London, I think it's a given that uh, the Labour will retain that. The attention will be on the West Midlands and Teesside, which in 2017, in the bumper year for the Tories, the Tories just scraped home in both of them. And uh, the significant thing for both parties is stories going around that Labour expects the Tories to hold Teesside Clearly and probably do so the same in the West Midlands now, if that's the case, then that will be a good night for the Tories and a bad night for labor uh,
1: and what's this been put down to there's a lot of talk about the vaccine bounce, and I know you've been looking at the polling and to ha- how that that's breaking down by age it, The improvement
7: for the Tories is, appears to be uh, related to the perception amongst the public that the government has got the vaccination program well is managing it well after problems last year over all sorts of things like testing and PPE etc and there is no question in my mind that this is benefiting the government it's a small bounce it still only produces a lead of 6% but it's significant but that only relates to 2016 uh, as I said just now, uh, the Tory lead in 2017 at that, that point in May was enormous. The Tories are nowhere near that now. So they should expect to lose some of what they gained in 2017.
1: We should just touch on the Lib Dems. They used to you know, build their base in local councils and that sort of thing. Obviously, with no elections, they've not been able to do that. Is there any sign of them coming back?
7: No, I think th- there is a real problem for the Lib Dems. They do campaign incredibly well. Um, that as you say they built their base on local government for the last year they've not been able to campaign and they got 12 percent in the general election in 2019 they're now down to six to eight percent so in fact the indications are that they are going to do worse than they would have done in a general election but as it happens 2016 and 2017 were not particularly good years for the Lib Dems, so they won't be defending that much. They just won't gain what they might have hoped to.
1: And I talked about um, how there are lots of elections happening in different places. Um, You you know, you might have district councils, you might have county councils. Which is the area where um, the most, where you go, where someone might be able to vote the most times?
7: Um, Tower Hamlets, part of Tower Hamlets in London. Uh, The voters there will have three votes for the London Mayor, for the London Assembly, for the top-up list for the Assembly. They'll have a referendum somewhat confusingly on uh, whether they're going to abolish their local mayor, not the London Mayor, but the local mayor. And then there's part of the Borough of Tower Hamlets where there's a referendum on a a neighbourhood environmental group outside London. Um, places like Salford, Liverpool, Bristol, and a whole series of other places, people will be able to vote four times.
1: Well, it's a, it's a, it's a jamboree of democracy. Uh, Rob <laughs> Hayward, thanks very much for joining us and talking us through what's happening, uh, in the, in the, the council elections across and mayoral elections across England. Of course, uh, coronavirus means lots of old style knocking on doors. People approaching the street with clipboards and leaflets is going to be, uh, tricky. So more and more campaign will be going online. But the big question is, do you know who's behind adverts that you might be seeing online, political adverts? There's also the worry about the volume of people who might be turning to postal voting. Uh, well, we can now speak to Elisa Irving, who's Director of Electoral Administration and Guidance at the Electoral Commission, just sort of the electoral watchdog uh, in the UK. Uh, first of all, can you, uh, well, let's touch on, before we get to adverts, let's talk about postal voting. Uh, the expectation that lots more people will opt for postal voters, so they don't have to go to a polling station in May.
5: Yeah, I think we are seeing that. What we've been doing is we've been carrying out some research to try to understand how voters feel about voting in elections in the context of the pandemic. And what we're finding is that while the majority of people do still feel confident going to vote in person at a polling place with appropriate hygiene measures and social distancing in place, and that the majority of people would still prefer to cast their vote in that way, we are seeing an increased number of people who are indicating that they would choose to vote by post. We've seen around a fifth of people who would typically vote in a polling station are indicating that they would prefer to vote by post this time round. So I think we are likely to see an increase, and we're encouraging people, you know, think about what voting method is going to be best for you. If you do want to vote by post, make sure you make your application early so that your ballot paper can be sent to you as quickly as possible, and you have until the 20th of April to get your application in
1: okay now on the subject of uh political adverts and and people posting things on twitter facebook social instagram and so on um what are the rules uh on political adverts and, and does the electoral commission think that they' they're, they're tough enough
5: well we are seeing an increased use of uh, digital campaigning over recent years and i think it's it 's only likely that's going to increase more this year with the public health restrictions that are in place uh, we've been making recommendations for a number of years about ways to improve transparency in particular in political advertising because what we see from our research with the public is that people are concerned about the truth transparency and targeting of political advertising so one thing that we've been calling for is the introduction of digital imprints which means people having to put on political adverts to say who's paid for the advert and who has placed the advert now that is something that actually for the Scottish Parliament elections in May of this year there will be legislation in place requiring uh, parties, candidates, campaigners to put that information on their digital adverts. It's not something that's in place for other elections yet, although we know that the UK government are looking at it for future elections. So it's something that is being considered and taken forward, but isn't in place yet.
1: And you'd like to see that happen. Just finally, then, because of the, the the changes, whether it's uh, restrictions on you know number of people in sports halls and that sort of thing, but also uh, increased number of postal votes. when might we see results from this bumper crop of elections? It's not worth staying up late on Thursday night.
5: Well, I think it definitely will take longer. I think because of the complex range of polls and because of the need to keep social distancing in count venues, counts will take longer. Some counts will start on the morning rather than overnight, as would often be the case. So I think we can definitely expect to see results trickling out over a longer period of time so that the count can be carried out accurately and safely.
1: Lovely stuff. We might be able to break some of the news on our show when we come on air on, on the Monday. Elsa Irving, uh, for the Electoral Commission. Uh, thanks very much for uh, talking us uh, through that. Right. So it's, of course, it's not just, uh, local and mayoral elections happening in England. There's big parliamentary elections happening in Scotland and Wales. Uh, let's go, let's, uh, hear from Scotland first of all and the elections to Hollywood. Uh, John Boothman from the Sunday Times gives us the lowdown.
8: Politicians are fond of saying that every election is the most important election. This time they may be right. There's a lot at stake in this one. Perhaps the very future of the union itself. These past few weeks, however, have not been kind to the SNP. Yet they remain 20 points ahead of their nearest rivals. Recent polls show a dip in nationalist support, a drop in the yes vote for independence and the SNP's insistence on a referendum later this year has not found favour with the voters. There are other key questions at stake. Can the Tories keep second place at Holyrood, or can Labour's new leader Anas Sarwar breathe oxygen into a party that's been in life support for a decade? For the SNP, the coming week will be difficult. The publication of the parliamentary inquiry into how the government handled complaints against Alex Salmond will not make pleasant reading, and a second report by independent legal adviser James Hamilton will determine whether Nicola Sturgeon misled Parliament and broke the ministerial code. If she did, there will be demands for her to resign. In recent weeks. The gloss on the First Minister's performance in the pandemic has slightly lost its shine, so how voters react to a lockdown plan to be announced this afternoon will be key to the result. This will be an odd election with constraints on traditional electioneering. Come May 6th, With some pandemic restrictions still in force, the turnout among Scotland's 4.2 million voters over 16 years old is unpredictable. But a low turnout will not help the case for a second independence vote. Well, that was John Boothman from the Sunday Times it's
1: telling us what's happening in Scotland, which is going to be one of the most uh, explosive uh, battles, I suspect. Uh, let's go to Wales now, though, where there's um, also elections happening to the Senate, the Welsh Parliament. Uh, Labour's Mark Drakeford, the First Minister there, confirmed the election would be going ahead uh, just last week. So... What's the picture there like? Let's speak to Will Hayward, the political editor for Wales Align, who often joins us for Dis United Kingdom on a Wednesday when we go around uh, the four corners of the UK to find out what's going on. Uh, he is here to tell us which parties may be in line to lose seats.
9: So we have the Senate election coming up on the 6th of May. It's now been confirmed that will in fact go ahead. It's going to be a really interesting election, um, mainly because we have really no idea how it's going to end up. So the coronavirus crisis has really been an awakening of Wales's devolved consciousness. For the first time, many people in Wales have realised that actually the country can go its own way and there is scope for uh, doing things a bit differently. Um, In terms of our politicians here, um, the fact that people in Wales now know who they are is a huge step forward in terms of a devolved consciousness. A recent Wales Online and YouGov poll said that the Welsh Labour, who are currently in power in Wales, could slip down to um, potentially 24 seats. Which would be their lowest ever that also suggested that a new party the abolish the assembly party which is quite strangely named as the Assembly actually doesn't exist anymore. It's now the Senate or Welsh Parliament. Could be on course to pick up up to five seats. But a separate BBC poll actually said that the Welsh Government might gain a seat and go up to 30 seats. So it's very much up in the air. There's a few seats which have quite individual issues. So um, in Blyna Gwent and Flanethly there are real battlegrounds. So how that plays out could could be key to the election. We also have for Lib Dems in a recent poll we're on course to actually retain a seat. Um, At the moment, they have Kirsty Williams, the Welsh Liberal Democrat leader, who is the education minister here. But um, she's actually going to be stepping down. So it could be that the uh, Welsh Liberal Democrats are actually wiped out at the next election. But overall, it is an immensely complicated picture. And after the last (laughs) year, well, four years, who makes predictions anymore?
1: That's uh, Will Hayward there from Wales Online. And as ever, uh, 11.30 every Wednesday on Times Radio, we bring you United Kingdom, where we, uh, we get politics from the four corners of the UK, England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. And of course, we'll do that this week as ever. Right. Coming up next, we'll take a look at the police and crime commissioner elections. It's the one that everyone is talking about. And because there are 9,000 parish councils potentially up for election, we'll speak to, well, parish council legend Jackie Weaver. That's next here on Times Radio.
8: Times Radio with Matt Chorley.
1: Right then, Uh, we're taking a look at uh, Super Thursday, the big vaccine vote on May the 6th when uh, there are so many elections happening right across the country. Uh, we've talked a lot about uh, uh, mayoral elections, council elections, Scottish, Welsh parliamentary elections, but uh, there's also police and crime commissioner elections happening across the country. Uh, this will be the third time they've been held, but they've rarely, really caught the public imagination, it has to be said. Let's speak to Paddy Tipping now. so a former MP, now chair of the Association of Police and Crime Commissioners and currently Nottinghamshire's Police and Crime Commissioner too. Hi, Paddy.
4: Hi,
1: Amartya. Uh, first of all, explain to people, I, I mean, obviously the entire nation knows, but just in case someone doesn't know, what is a police and crime commissioner? What was the role involve?
4: Oh, it's a different roles. First of all, I have to, or PCCs, have to write what's called a police and crime plan that sets out with the chief constable the priorities for policing in an area. Uh, secondly, uh, they set the budget, uh, big issue with that. Uh, many of your listeners will want to comment on that. And thirdly, uh, there's the, uh, the PCC hires and, uh, if necessary, fires the chief constable. And on top of that, it's about nudging the police to try and do things that uh, uh, residents in the area want to do. So it's an interesting role.
1: And crucially, it's not about saying, go and arrest that man. But it is about saying, I want you to concentrate on tackling, I don't know, uh b- Puppy thefts or drug dealer or some, something which is a particular concern in that area. So it's sort of set in the direction, not yeah. specifically sort of ordering police officers around.
4: No, the chief constable has got day-to-day control of uh, the force. Uh, that's been the history of British policing uh, forever, and uh, I think that will be the case because the people don't want politicians meddling in uh, a kind of uh, law enforcement but it's about setting out the strategic direction uh, the priorities you talked about dogs just now big issue at the moment a live issue uh, uh I very interested here in Nottinghamshire. I know Times Radio is is a knife crime. Again, a focus on that. And uh, again, one of the things I've been really interested in and uh, we've made a lot of progress on is having a police force that represents the wider community, the the BAME community. And uh, we had Black Lives Matter last year. That's still rumbling forward. Having a police force that... uh, uh, reflects all our communities I, th- I think it's important and again uh that's uh, as the cops would put it i'm on the case for that <laughs> um,
1: it's worth pointing out when when they were first elected back in 2012 turnout was just 15% of people took part in that it rocketed to just 26% back in uh, uh 2016 is this a sign that maybe that the whole system isn't really working that people don't want to directly elect someone just to look after the police that actually this might be better sitting with a mayor or a council council leader?
4: So you're right to say the first election uh, was uh, a bit of a disaster. Uh, The government didn't get its legislation through on time. So the election took place in the bleak midwinter in November and turnout was very low indeed. It's increased uh, over the uh, last election, uh, but the turnout's still low, broadly similar to uh, a local council election. But as you've been saying to your listeners, Super Thursday... May the 6th, there's elections all over the shop, and uh, (laughs) uh, I would expect there to be uh, a bigger turnout uh, uh, this year than we've had before.
1: Obviously, there's been a lot of discussion in recent days about uh, the role of policing and who is ultimately responsible for what the police do following the uh, the policing of the, the vigil of Sarah Everard, particularly in London. But there were vigils and events planned right across the country. Is this the sort of thing that uh, may be an issue in these elections that different candidates might say, well, I would or wouldn't allow protests and that sort of thing to go ahead?
4: Well, this is an operational matter, so it's largely a matter for the uh, Chief Constable. uh, But we had a demonstration here in Nottingham uh, on Saturday. Uh, It was very low-key police, uh, about 100 people there, social distance, wearing masks. And there were just two female police officers there. And there was a very striking image at the end of the uh, uh, vigil one of the women police officers, lighting a candle. Uh, but I discussed the way we were going to do this uh, with the chief constable. Uh, he was very clear that he wanted, well, he didn't want the event to go ahead, to be quite clear, but he thought it was going to happen, and he thought, i better make sure it happens in a sensible way that keeps the public safe.
1: Paddy Tipping, really good to speak to Paddy Tipping is uh, chairman of the Association of Police and Crime Commissions, which is another group of people are being elected on May the 6th. Finally, there are uh, 9,000 parish councils where, if there are enough people who put themselves forward, there will be elections. And, of course, parish councils have been thrown into the spotlight in recent weeks by that meeting at Handforth, Handforth Parish Council, which went viral. Well, I've read the standing orders. And I've caught up with Jackie Weaver and uh, I started by, uh, who who of course featured in that handful of Parish Council meeting. I started by asking her who should have the authority and who should become a parish councillor.
6: If I was to design a parish councillor, um, I would have to start with someone who was passionate. And I mean really passionate, really committed and interested in either the people or the area or both in which they live. Um, and the parish council, in my opinion, is the mechanism that they can use to affect change in their locality. And can
1: anyone do it? The impression that people might have had from the, you know, whether it's the Vicar of Dibley or the Hanforth parish council meeting, is that it's men of a certain age arguing about things that men of a certain age argue about. Well, what, anyone could become a parish councillor.
6: Um, there are certainly also women of a certain age on those parish councils as well, um, and for for many years we have been working both at local and at national level on trying to um, change the demographic of, of parish councils, but time and time again we come against the same problem, which is we start with people who don't know what a parish council is in the first place, so then attracting a wider demographic to get involved with them it is a bit challenging. <laughs> And um, this month uh, has given me um, a platform that I couldn't have hoped for in terms of being able to engage with people and tell them about the fantastic things that town and parish councils do and encourage them to even just look at them. You know, I mean, here we are able to have meetings by Zoom. Other platforms are available. And it means that, you know, you don't even have to leave your front room in order to to drop in and see what's happening in your local council. And if you find that it is like the Vicar of Dibley, and if you feel that there are things that are happening in your local community that really need the community behind them to to change, then get in there and start making a change. And
1: what's been your experience since that, that meeting went viral? Because also the meeting happened last year, it just happened to sort of go bonkers uh, yeah. a few weeks ago. What has been your sort of experience of the, of, of, the, of the assumptions that people make about parish councils and the message that you've been trying to get across since then? In,
6: in terms of assumptions, you know, you, you highlighted very, very clearly there, Matt, one of the assumptions is Vicar of Dibley. Another assumption is that they are somehow inexorably linked with the church, so they're a denominational thing. And also we have the other end of the scale where people think that they are in fact the principal authority and are responsible for not repairing the roads. So everything in between what the last month has told me is that actually there is interest out there if we only tap into it. And one of the um, kind of bodies, um, I can't think of another way of putting it, that, that really have surprised me are young people and the willingness that there is about young people, from young people in wanting to get involved but not knowing how to go about it. And I think, you know, from my perspective, that that's a, a huge untapped resource. I mean, particularly the way young people are so interested in um, the, the, the built environment and global warming, etc.
1: And given your, your celebrity status as a result of that, what's the most ridiculous thing that you've been asked to do or endorse or... Uh, is it what? there's a song? There's even
6: a... My dance track is being released today. <laughs> what do you mean it's there a song?
1: <laughs> so this is you being remixed to dance. Is that the most ridiculous thing you've been asked to do?
6: I don't think it's ridiculous at all. <laughs> Part of the, you know, it's so easy for us to say that, that us older people and younger people just live in two different worlds and never the twain shall meet. And I've kind of offered a kind of challenge to young people, say, OK, using Twitter releasing my first dance track is <laughs> really out of my comfort zone come and find me do something a bit out of your comfort zone and let's see if we can have a really meaningful conversation together about how we change the demographic on local councils Weavers kicked him out she's right. kicked him out well, where's we'll the chair you. will you make the change Well, that's
1: it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bits of my Times Radio show. You can listen to the whole thing uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. It's available on DAB online via smart speaker or on the Times Radio app. And if you want to read more about all of the stories we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe.